Today we're going to be starting a new series, In It To Win It, which we've been waiting for for ages. Some of you have been waiting like a year for this series, and well, it's good to wait sometimes, but really excited to be actually getting into this. And we'll actually be doing this series um, pretty much nearly to the end of the year. So if you'd like to turn, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if you're making notes, I've, I've called this message, Breaking Out of the Ghetto. And really, looking at 1 Corinthians 9, and really the verses that we're going to be looking at today, we're not only going to be going through this text for the next two weeks, trying to exposit it and understand it. In many ways, this text causes the, forms really the backbone of this whole series for the next eight weeks. It's so important that we understand what Paul is saying here to the Corinthians, and through Paul to the Corinthians, what God is saying to us. So 1 Corinthians 9, we're going to read from verse 19 to 23, and then we're going to get into it. Listen to this and be addressed by God. This is what he says. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you know how we have waited for this series. Father, I ask that this series would indeed change our lives as we examine your word, as we examine your heart for the lost, as we examine your model and your example of what it is to show compassion to outsiders. And what it is to be in the world, to win the world. Lord, would you change our hearts? Would we look back at the end of 2011 and be aware that you have changed us. And that this church has begun to look different for the glory of God. Lord, have your way amongst us and speak to us. Sear our hearts and affect us by your amazing grace. Amen. Since we launched this church in September 2010, and we've really enjoyed three very specific series since we started. For those of you that were actually here September last year, we did the first three weeks um, in a series called First Things First. And we just examined why it's so important that we keep the main thing the main thing. Why it's so important that we keep the gospel central in all that we do and that as a local church we build around the gospel. We then spent nearly a year in the book of Ephesians. And I'm... There's no apologies that we spent nearly a year in it because it was just such a, a critical and important letter, I think, for us to go through as a local church to see how God in his grace has saved us but has not only just saved us and then go single file and be lone rangers for Jesus, but he's gathered us together in local churches, both Jew and Gentile, man and woman, slave and free. He, he's brought different diversities into the context of local churches. And what a great book to be able to look at and examine how the gospel actually functions in a local church so that truly people are actually doing life together. And then for the last three weeks, prior to Bob coming, we did a series called Why Sacrifice? 
the whole premise of why it's important that we give and the opportunity that giving prevails for us as the gospel is advanced. Now, all of those three series were all designed into the whole equation of knowing and applying the gospel. That's what that's all been about. For those of you that have been on starting point, which is everybody who's actually a member of Sovereign Grace Church, you'll remember that on the first week, we, we looked very clearly at what is Sovereign Grace Church all about. Because so many people come in from different angles. Even this last few weeks when I was with Bob Coughlin, you know, you, people know who you are, so you say hello and you talk to them. They say, oh, you're the guy from the Charismatic Reform Church. I think, well, um, yes, that is what we are. And people define you by various different things. And yet what we want to define this local church is the gospel. And that's why in week one of starting point, we look at length that we want to be a community of believers who are passionate about knowing the gospel, applying the gospel, and proclaiming the gospel. For the first year then, we've been looking at length of what it is to know and apply the gospel, how the gospel needs to be known, and how it needs to be applied in the context of local church. But now we're starting to look at that last part, proclaiming the gospel. What it actually looks like to brandish the gospel and together as a local church and as a family begin to not only apply it in our lives inwardly, but apply it to our lives outwardly as we take it into our city and our communities for the glory of God. Hence this series, In It to Win It. And this series, I I think, could not be more important for us. See, I don't want you to think that this is just another series, just something that we're filling the time because we're not quite sure what to do until Christmas. That's not the case. This is just a really important series. This isn't going to be a fad. This isn't something that we're just going to look at and then be like, oh, that's nice, kind of optional at this church. This is fundamental. This is really the DNA of who we are. This is critical that we understand this stuff and digest this stuff and apply this stuff and begin to allow it to operate in our midst as Sovereign Grace Church. And so the way I've designed this message, just by the way of kicking off this eight-part series, is just to slow down and explain why I think this series is so important for us. Why I think it is so important that being just over a year old, we spend time for several months just examining the scriptures on what it is to be evangelistic, what it is to proclaim the gospel, what it is to imbibe culture and understand what it is to reach culture. I think it's so important if we're really going to be a church that models this, that we really understand this. So there's three reasons that I want to look at from this text, but to be honest, pastorally from the whole Bible, as to why we're slowing down and it's so important as a church that we do this series. Here's the first one. Number one, the temptation we can and will face to stay in the ghetto. The temptation we can and will face to stay in the ghetto. That's the first reason why it's so important, I think, that we do a series like this in Sovereign Grace Church. See, to see what God has done in our midst over the last year is overwhelming in so many ways. To see how God in his grace is causing us to become family. And I know that's what you're feeling. I know that's what you're starting to experience in life groups and in life. People are, are ever increasingly becoming tighter, becoming carrying one of those burdens and being devoted to one of the light the scripture talks about. That's good. That's a New Testament living. That's a New Testament local church. We don't just go to church. We are the church. We don't attend services. We serve. This is our whole lives. This is who we are and what we do. And so it's been wonderful for me as a pastor, to see the way God has been applying his word in your lives, to see how you've grown in understanding the gospel, 
understanding in assurance what Jesus has done for you and then being defined by Christ and him crucified and not by other things. And it's been a joy to see how the, the Holy Spirit has allowed the gospel to function in our relationships. I mean, I'm aware that most fellowship groups last week seemed to finish after 11 o'clock. That would have never happened when we started. They finished at nine, you know, because people didn't like, well, this is kind of weird. Whereas now people actually get along. That's encouraging. People actually like being together. Increasingly, we're having to say to people at the end of the service, you know, I think it's probably kind of home time and time to go home and people don't want to leave, so they stay in the car park for ages and people are there at the gate, like, is there any chance you could leave? That's good because it shows we're becoming family and people are genuinely increasingly carrying one another's burdens and encouraging one another and caring one another, and standing with one another, and rejoicing with one another, and crying with one another, they're all important categories, and they're all critical categories in the life of a local church that is healthy, and that is truly a family. But there are serious temptations that come with that. And I think the temptation, more than anything, is the temptation to gain a ghetto mentality, to basically start to live our lives as if the ghetto is all there is. We start to live our lives as if the ghetto is the main thing. And so we start to hold up and hold up in the ghetto and that's what we become passionate about. And I think it's a temptation that every church goes through, but particularly a church plant. I think we get so tempted to think, this is great. We're family. And we forget about everything else. And that's not right. It's a temptation but it's a one that we must overcome. You see, a ghetto, I don't know what you think a ghetto is, but usually people think of it as a slum. So the slums of Cairo or whatever it is, we think, oh, that's a ghetto. But not according to the Chambers English Dictionary, which is like the Bible of dictionaries. I don't know if you have an, do you have an Australian dictionary? Throw it away, you speak English. You need to speak Chambers English Dictionary. And this is what a ghetto is according to the Chambers English Dictionary. It says a ghetto is a specific area marked out as distinct, set apart to contain some group regarded as non-mainstream. A ghetto is a specific area marked out as distinct, set apart to contain some group regarded as non-mainstream. Now, we don't all live in a commune, so we don't all live in the same place. However, we are still indeed distinct, set apart, and we do contain what is regarded as non-mainstream. We are the ecclesia, right? called out ones. We are set apart by very nature. And so a ghetto in so, way, in so many ways, you begin to understand, oh, a church is a type of ghetto. The problem is, though, the church should be a ghetto in one sense. It should be a place where we are family and we're doing life together. It should be a place where we're truly linking arms in the glorious gospel and seeking to help one another grow for the glory of God. It should be that type of place. But the problem is when it becomes the only place, that is a great danger for us. And it's so easily done, but it is so unbiblical. See, Matthew 28 says to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. The premise is, yes, you are a family. By the grace of God, God has taken you from all tribes and languages and nations and pulled you together as a temple, as a new race, as a local church. And so now, go. Go make disciples of all nations. Now, I'm aware in Sydney, that on the whole has been taken that therefore we should go to other nations. Well, that's a question of perspective because I'm from another nation. And if everybody goes to other nations, 
Is anybody staying? You know, that we have to actually win the community that we're in. So part of going is not necessarily, oh, therefore, let's go. It's go to your communities. Go to your workplaces. Go to your colleges. Go to your universities. Go to the places that God has assigned you in his sovereignty and begin to brandish the gospel and take it out. In Romans 10, then, the Apostle Paul explains to us at length that the gospel can save people. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But then he goes on to tell us, but how can they call upon the name of the Lord who they've never heard of? And his whole premise is, who's going to tell them? Who's going to do this? And the Apostle Paul example himself in 1 Corinthians 9, this very text, the whole premise is, listen, I've become all things to all people so that by all means I may win some. The Apostle Paul is not closed off into a little book of Ephesians just wondering that the church is amazing and all I want to do is be at the church. The Apostle Paul understands that this ghetto is my life, this is my family, but we have therefore within the context of being gathered together as family, we must go into our communities and be the church in our communities and be all things to all people so that by all means we may win some. The whole sense of the Bible is a family, an ecclesia called out that then gathers together for singing, for praise, for the preached word, for fellowship, and then they go out and they be the church in the world. That's what we want to be. That's what we want to do. Life is not just the ghetto. And yet I still submit to you, it's still really tempting to stay in the ghetto. And the reason why I know that is because for so many years of my life, that's the way I lived. I loved the ghetto. And the church was my life and was everything. It was in 2006 then that the church that I was a part of before and pastoring Christchurch in, in Newport, Wales, we studied this book. We went through the Radical Reformation by Mark Driscoll. And it really did change our lives as we examined the scripture in there and began to realize, here's the challenge. I remember one time sitting around as a pastoral team and the question was just put out there, who do you know as a friend that's a non-believer? Um, we went round and do you know who Nope. Do you know anybody? Nope. They came to me. Do you know anybody? I don't know a soul. All of my people are in the church. And I've given my life to the church. And we're all giving our lives to the church. And so we began to talk to our, our life group leaders about, you know, how, how's it going for you in terms of reaching unbelievers? And Would you call yourself a friend of sinners? When was the last time you went to an unbeliever's birthday party or got invited to their wedding or around their home or actually sat and ate a meal with them? And as we go around, realizing, nope. Nope, nope. We were building a ghetto, which was great. The gospel was being preached. The gospel was being applied. And evangelism for us for years then looked like little sauté midnight, midnight sort of missions that we're a bit embarrassed about. So you'd try and have an Alpha course or a Christianity Explored course and no one knew anybody. So they would take their leaflets and in the middle of the night they would post them in people's doors and think, praise God for evangelism. And that would be the evangelism of the church. And we used to think, well, that's it. So all we're trying to do is build this big church that everybody would come to in an attractional way. But here's the problem. No one came. No one was bothered. Because it just didn't work like that. We had built a ghetto, a family of people that sometimes people were added because they were God-fearers. 
and they had a background of Christianity. But there was a whole load of people that would frequent RSLs or pubs or clubs or everything else that would not dream of coming to church. In the UK, less than 1% of people go to church at all. If you're going to try and build a model where you're going to try and open the doors and encourage people to come, you must be having a laugh. Nobody cares. And so we were just so challenged in the way we, we had to rethink how evangelism should function and how mission should function. And yet that began for us as we realized we have succumbed to the temptation to think that it's all about the ghetto. I don't want that to happen here. See, I remember for Emma and I, when we, do you remember the whole process? And, and Emma was the same. We just didn't know anybody. And so we realized, man, this has got to change. Jesus was a friend of sinners. We didn't seem to have any friends that are sinners. That's a problem. And so we started to go to what you call PNC events. I became the PNC treasurer. It was, it was awkward. And our very first event was a disco. And you're thinking, what do we do now? So we went along to this disco and you said, this is good. And you're trying to just, how do you, how do you talk to these unbelievers? What do you say? Oh, hello. And they say, hello back. And you think, how does this work? So out of touch with what it was. But we started to go into these different things and started to realize that this is a joy. To be with unbelievers is a great joy. And the more you put your foot in front of the other, they invite you and pull you into their lives. I remember that very first PNC disco. And we didn't know where to put ourselves. We didn't know what was going on. But this big guy just said, look, do you want to come back to our house? We're having a few drinks afterwards. And we thought, why don't we do that? And within the end, by the end of the night, what had taken place is we were around their house with lots of other families from the same school. The guys are getting off their faces. The women are swearing. The guys start handing around porn on their iPhone. And you think, well, this is the world. This is the world we live in. And I was so out of touch with what it was. But it changed our lives as a pastoral team and as a church. It changed our lives as we realized you have to befriend sinners. You can't just stay in your ghetto. But we were tempted to. And the whole church was tempted to. And my guess is maybe we're tempted to too. Our temptation is to think, well, I'm serving Jesus by giving myself to my life group. And I serve on a Sunday morning and I give great but he's called us to use all those things to go make disciples of all nations they're not the end and of itself they're a means we don't we want to overcome then the temptation so why are we spending so long on evangelism being in the world to win the world well that's number one the temptation we can and will face to stay in the ghetto a temptation i want to ensure that myself and you guys are overcoming number two the plight of those beyond the ghetto. Why is it so important that we be in the world to win the world? Well, because of the plight. The plight of those beyond our walls. Folks, I think this is something that, that I and maybe you, we don't think about enough. We spend so long looking at what God is doing in our own lives. And then I think in Christian subculture, we can be picky about certain doctrines or practices and forget what is going on in the real world. You know, when you're spending time with people that are lonely and desperate and wrecking their lives, they're not too worried about minor doctrinal details. They're lost and they need help. And Sydney, in all reality, haven't lived here for nearly a year and a half now, it's just like every other major city of the world. It epitomizes what a broken down house it is and it is a world of hurt out there. 
And as soon as you begin to engage people, you realize it's a mess like everywhere else. Sydney is full of executives who are bringing in the big dollar. And yet behind the scenes when the mask comes off, they are desperate and lost and lack a security and identity and purpose in their lives and don't know how to go about what they're doing. The reason you can tell that is because when business is bad, they are losing their marbles because they're lost and they're desperate. There are young people in this city who are so pressurized with the HSC or getting a job or even when they've got a job having to earn major bucks to actually get in the property ladder that instead turn to drink and drugs and sex just to escape the pressures that they feel every single day of their lives. There are couples in our city who on the face of it look great and publicly they put on a great show as if there's perfect union together. But behind the scenes are going through major relationship challenges and no one knows and they cry themselves to sleep as they do not know what they are going to do. There are people in this city, patients, who are battling illnesses, battling terminal illnesses and are doing so with fear, without hope, crippled in what they do and they do so alone without anybody engaging them, no friends standing by their side. They may have a thousand Facebook friends but no one goes to visit because no one's a real friend. No one is really taking the time to get to know them and understand how they feel. There are single mums in this city who are struggling financially and cry themselves to sleep as they consider how on earth are they going to get through another month and how are they going to make ends meet financially? How are they going to cope and raise the children that they've been given? There are parents who have invested their whole lives sending their kids to private school, doing all the different things, doing sports with them every weekend. But now as the kids grow older, they realize their relationships with their kids are completely falling apart. And so they spend their evenings wondering, where did, where did we go wrong? And they feel lost and desperate as a result. This city is just like everywhere else. It is a world of hurt. It is filled with people who sadly and grievingly spend time entertaining themselves and all looks great on the surface. You see their pictures on Facebook and you think, they must have a wonderful life. But the more you get to know them, you realize they are alone, they are sad, they are desperate, they lack security and identity and purpose and all these things then are an illustration and an expression of just entertaining themselves so that they can get rid of the thoughts of who they really are and what's going to happen to them when they die. Sydney is a world of hurt just like everywhere else. And they're the people that the Savior came for. That's why he came. He came for people that are sick. He came for people that are hurting. He came for people that are, that are lost. See, so often in Christianity, it, it grieves me and I think it's, it's wrong. I think so often when you hear Christians talking about the lost... It's almost a non-emotional expression and we're just referring to somebody's status. Well, they're lost and I'm not lost. And onward we go. It's not, that isn't the case as biblically defined. As biblically defined, when you see the word lost, it's not just talking about a status. It's talking about an experience. Have you ever been lost? It's not nice. I remember when I was about six years old, we were around this big superstore and I lost my parents. I was standing at the lift and my mum was trying to call me in the lift but I got a little distracted with something or other and all I remember is the lift closing and my mum said, stay there! 
I thought, where have they gone? They've gone. And of course, I didn't stay there. I went running off. And, you just, and panic just starts to, panic just starts to, you know, and you still remember this because I was lost. I didn't know where they had gone. I didn't know what I was going to do. I was six. I didn't know where I lived. There are people all around Sydney that are they're lost. It's not a status. It's an experience. Everybody then is seeking to find identity and security and purpose in whatever it is, whether it be relationships or money or marriage or jobs, whatever it is. People are desperately looking for who am I? What am I? What is my life about? And so they find it in lots of different things. They are lost. And they're the people that Saviour came for. And in a desire to ensure that we don't forget them. See, I think we can forget them. And I think for years in my life, I forgot them. I did. I completely forgot them. I thought, well, the doors are open. They can come. God's sovereign, right? He'll draw them if he wants to. And completely misunderstood all of Scripture, all things to all men, so that by all means I may save some. The whole premise is going out, talking to people, seeking to be out, winning people, going and making disciples of all nations. For years I just forgot about that. I just thought, well, the doors are open. They can come if they want to. That ain't right. I think sadly Christians can forget in the busyness of life about the truth of people being lost. And we can forget as we examine the ghetto and give ourselves to so many ghetto activities that we just forget that there's people out there that are lost and they're going to hell outside of an incredible account with God through the gospel. So in a desire to address that, one of my real prayers through this series is that as a local church, we would grow in our compassion for the lost. We would start to feel the way Jesus feels towards the lost. We'd begin to see them like the Savior sees them. We'd begin to have a heart in the way the Savior has a heart for them. Because that changes everything. You see, no one modeled compassion better than the Savior. Check this out. Turn turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. Let's just have a a look at the Saviour in action. Listen to this and consider how, consider how do you feel about the lost? This is how he feels. How do you view the lost? So I think sometimes in Christianity, I think sometimes, sadly, as Christians, we can view the lost as if they're a bit of an inconvenience and as a bit of, you know, well... I remember at Christchurch, we, we started to do more and more reach out and bring people in, but we lived in a very impoverished area. So people would come in and the kids would be swearing and they'd only be seven and they'd want to sit in the middle of the church and you know stand on their chairs and wave and do different things and then go running around. And there was different people in the church that would say, look, this is really not helping me in my worship. And you think, you have missed the point. This is why we're here. We're here for the community. We're here for the lost. And so we want to give these guys room so that we may win them for Jesus Christ. This is the Jesus. This is him. This is how he views the lost. Listen, Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all of the, all of the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Listen to this. When he saw the crowds... He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. 
how do you view people in your communities? How do you view people at work, people at colleges that you think, oh, they're such wasters. I can't believe why they're wrecking their life like that. That's self-righteousness. The Savior viewed them as people who were helpless, harassed, and lost. Harassed simply means to be overwhelmed with the troubles of life. Helpless simply means to be unable to do anything about it. And to be a sheep without the shepherd means to be lost. So when the Savior of the world came to earth and looked at people, he didn't see them as an inconvenience. He didn't see them as an I told you so moment. He didn't see them as if, well, you're just wrecking your lives and I've told you not to. He saw them as people who harassed, overwhelmed with the troubles of life, unable to do anything about it, and lost. People that are searching in so many different places for security and identity of purpose but have not found it. Sheep without a shepherd. And the fruit of that in the Saviour's heart was compassion. He fell for them. And that's why you see our Saviour crying over the lost. When was the last time you and I cried over the lost? That's what he was like. He cried for people as he considered their lost state, who they are and how much they are needing to be reconciled to God the Father. My prayer then is that over this course we would grow in our compassion that our story as a local church would be one of growingly weeping for the lost, growingly feeling a compassion for them, growingly seeing the people that we work with and go to college with who we might find annoying as helpless, harassed, and lost. And would that cultivate compassion in our hearts? Here's the third reason then why it's so important we do this as a series. Number three, the example of the Saviour. The example of who Jesus was. You see, when it comes to the topic of being in it to win it, in the world to win the world, nobody modeled that better than the Savior of the world. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we have a Savior who is the epitome of everything we're going to be talking about over this next eight weeks. Because he truly was in the world to win the world. You see that straight off the bat from his birth. You ever thought about that? Think about his birth. I mean, Jesus is spending perfect unity with God the Father and God the Spirit. They are dwelling in perfect unity together. There are seraphim and cherubim flying around and standing around singing praises to them. They are having a fine time. Thank you very much. There is great joy in the heavenly realms between the Trinity. And yet Jesus Christ, out of compassion for the lost, comes to earth born through the birth canal of Mary and born into the squalor of a borrowed stable. That must have been a small shock to the system. And yet he did it because he wanted to be in the world to win the world. The very incarnation was the whole birth of someone demonstrating what it is to go, to be sent, to go after people by all means so that by all means you may win some. And then his life... He really modeled everything we're going to be talking about this, this for the next few months just incredibly well. Prior to Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross for all those who would put their faith in him and Lord and Savior, he modeled in his life what it truly looks like to be in it to win it as a friend of sinners. I mean, that was the very thing placarded over his life. The church looked on most often, different enemies looked on most often and said to Jesus, you're a friend of sinners. It was an accusation. 
They were slagging him off. Because their assumption was, you spend all your time with prostitutes and drunkards and tax collectors, you must be like them. And Jesus then in the Gospels wonderfully turns it on his head and basically says, you know what? I am a friend of sinners. That's why I came. I came for the sick. I came for the lost. You don't see our Savior standing on the sidelines just occasionally giving out leaflets to the occasional event. You don't see Jesus building big posters by the side of the church. I'm not against building big posters by the side of the church, but they're not my preference. With one-liner statements, as if we're meant to drive past and go, I cannot believe it. I must turn to Christ right away. You know, Turn to him today or you'll rot in hell. I don't think that's going to motivate anybody ever. I don't think he did that. Jesus didn't write prescriptions from the sidelines. That's not what he did. Jesus didn't spend his life while he was here keeping out the way and just hanging with the disciples in case they contaminate his holiness. So I don't want to spend time with... I mean, imagine going to a pub. Imagine you might be tempted to swear. I've heard people say that. Not here. Because you do swear because you're Australian. But (laughs) in Britain we speak properly. But I've heard people say it. I've heard people not want to go into certain circumstances. And listen, we'll talk about more of this next week because contextualization is, is important. But, but I've heard people say, we mustn't go into those places because it might cause us to not be holy. Well, Jesus seemed to do pretty darn well. And if we don't get out there and be like that with people, if we don't examine Paul's example of all things to all people so that by all means, all we're going to do is build a ghetto and shut the door and leave a little leaky door at the back in case anybody wants to come in. That is not going to work. Jesus didn't do that. He got his disciples and he said, right guys, we're going. Yeah, let's keep gathering together because when we gather together, that's when we focus around the gospel. That's when we get to do life together. That's when we get to hold each other accountable and encourage one another and help one another in this quest. But outside of that, we've got to go. We've got to get out. The Savior's example is not one of keeping out the way. He didn't sit on the side writing prescriptions for others to send. We see the Savior of the world as the maker of heaven and earth coming to earth and then rolling his sleeves up, putting a towel around his waist and getting on it and spending time with people, being all things to all people so that by all means he may win some. He was a friend of sinners. That's who he was and that's what he did. Let's so take, for example, John 4. The Samaritan woman. The whole premise around the Samaritan woman is Jesus says right up front in John 4 that he has to go through Samaria. That's really odd because he doesn't have to go through Samaria. You would go round Samaria. So if you're going to go from Judea to Galilee, you would always go round because the Samaritans, the Jews, they didn't hit it off too great. A bit like you know, Australia, New Zealand, just don't hit it off too well. It would just be really bad in the way they would consider each other. But apparently in John 4... He had to go there. Why? Well, because he had to meet a lady. He had to meet a Samaritan woman. And he wanted to tell her about the gospel so that she may drink of the waters of life and be saved. And so we see him in Jacob's well in in John chapter 4. And he's sitting, communicating and talking to the Samaritan woman. This, to the Jewish culture, is a mind-blowing scene. For a start, Jews didn't like Samaritans. You never talk to a Samaritan. Samaritans were the half-breeds. So the whole premise is you keep out of the way of the Samaritans. For years they had had a falling out. For years they kept away from one another. Likewise, Jesus was a rabbi and everybody knew he was a rabbi. Rabbis don't talk to women. Secondly, or thirdly, this woman. She was an adulterer. 
She had already had five husbands and now she was on to another one. It seems like everybody in the village has had a bit of this woman at different points. She is renowned for that. That is why she has come out in the heat of the day. Because everybody that's got a brain doesn't come out in the heat of the day. They come out early. But she knows full well that if she comes out early, she has to sit with all the other women that are going to gossip about her and slander her. So she comes out in the middle of the day and Jesus begins communicating to her, asking her for a drink. Unbelievable. Asking a Samaritan woman for a drink, drinking of something that she possesses and lowers and gives him would make him ceremonially unclean. But he doesn't care because he's in the world to win the world. And what he sees before him is a woman who is harassed and helpless and lost. So he talks to her and he befriends her and by God's grace he wins her to the gospel. She sees many people saved through her as he gives her the gospel. Mark chapter 10. We see Jesus with the little children. The disciples are trying to shoo the little children away as if to say, listen, do you mind? This is the Messiah, the King of Kings. He's got some really important jobs on. You know, take them all away. And Jesus rebukes them, saying, listen, this is why I've come. I've come for little ones like these. And so Jesus, the Savior of the world, is befriending people and loving them, even children. And in Luke 19, Jesus, on his way to Jerusalem, enters Jericho. (coughs) The crowds are there in their multitudes. They all want to see Jesus because he's the Messiah. Jesus looks at a little midget guy in the tree and says, listen, I want to have lunch with you. He's the town crook. Zacchaeus is the town crook. Everybody knows that. People are disgusted. There is rebellion going on in Jericho. Unbelievable that the Messiah wants to spend lunch with the town crook. But Jesus didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. So he engages Zacchaeus and he talks to Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus gives his life to following Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. Do you see it? Jesus Christ was in it to win it. He didn't just build a big tent around himself and then advertise, why don't you come and check me out? He's getting out there. He's getting out into the world to win the world so that by all means... He may win some. And how does this affect us? This is how. Humbling and terrifyingly, we're now on. Jesus now resides at the right hand of the Father. But before he left, in John chapter 20, he looks the disciples in the eyes, men who represented us in that moment, and he simply says this, as the Father has sent me, I now send you. If we refuse to be in the world to win the world, then we're refusing a command on our lives. We've been sent. We've been sent by the Savior of the world to be an ambassador for Christ in our communities, in our cities, in the place that we love, Sydney. We've been commissioned and sent by him. And so is the example of the Savior important? Oh, it's vital because it's an example that we must examine and it's an example that we must follow. I want to be a friend of sinners. I do. I love being around Christians all the time. I mean, we're all sinners too, right? You get get the idea. Sinners as in unbelieving, lost. I love being around Christians. To be honest, one of the gutting things about being a pastor is I'm not around unbelievers enough. Seriously. 
seriously, it's a real sacrifice to be a pastor in that sense. When I used to work for Admiral Car Insurance, I was on, the, I was on a floor with 220 people who were all aged between 18 and 25. It was great. There was a harvest field in front of me every single day. You become a pastor and, well, you're looking at Alison. I'm not sure if she's a Christian, but we're working on it. And your wife and kids, you know, and you think, well, there's probably not too much reaching out today. You really have to work at it. You guys have a real opportunity to be in it to win it. And for Emma and I, we've had to rock up and start from nothing. So for us, guess what? It's back to PNC. And there's all the different things going on at school. that you, This guy. I mean, you're just doing all you can to try and get to know people for Jesus. So I play snooker with different guys. And I, I'm, st- I'm playing soccer next year, can you believe? Over 35 team. I may die, uh, but hopefully I won't. But, but you, what are you going to do? What are we going to do? Otherwise, it's just lip service. It's just, yes, well, I want to go, go and make disciples of all nations. Well, we, we're all dying. We haven't got long. So what are we going to do? What type of church are we going to be? If Sovereign Grace Church Sydney is only ever known as the Reformed Charismatic Church, then I think I'll have failed you. Because that's not what we're about. I want Sovereign Grace Church to be known as a church. You know what? They, they love the gospel. And they apply the gospel. And they proclaim the gospel. Man, they've got so much going on as a church. They are befriending sinners. They're getting people added to that church who are the most unlikely people in the world. They're not God-fearers. They're not people that have grown up going to some Anglican church doing Sunday school seven days a week. They're not. They're people that hated Jesus all their lives. And yet some guy met him at the RSL and started to talk to him and started to befriend him. And you know what? He's given his life to Jesus as his Lord and Savior. He's married the person he's now living with and his life and his family has been completely changed around. That's what I want. I think that's what the Lord wants for us. And I submit to you, that's what Sydney needs. It doesn't need a nice church. It needs a missional church. And there are plenty of missional churches going on. It needs another one. And it needs one here. Well, that's us. If you're like me, that's humbling. But it's also slightly terrifying, is it not? In terms of what? What? It's us? Oh yeah, it's us. We're on. So that is why we're doing this series It's why it is so important that we examine it. The temptation to stay in the ghetto, the plight of those beyond the ghetto, and the example of the Savior. Just a few things then, a few suggestions before we finish on how we can squeeze the juice out of this series because I want to prepare us well and do all I can to pastor you well as we prepare for this thing. Just a couple of things. Number one, during this series, read and meditate on the Gospels. The Gospels are always good. But particularly during this series, I want to encourage you to read and meditate on the Gospels. I think it would be good for us to be walking with Jesus every day, to see him, see what he does, examine him. So we're not just talking ethereal when we're discussing these things, but we're actually being able to point to one that this is what he did. This was his life. This was his example. Number two, buy and read Radical Reformation by Mark Driscoll, this book. Please buy this. And please read this. It is excellent. The whole premise that he goes with is reaching out without selling out. And the whole premise he takes is, you know what? We don't have to sign up to be a missionary and go to Timbuktu. We're all missionaries because we're Christians. And that means getting on it right here in our cultures. And he starts talking about crossing barriers and being a people that what we're looking at, in it to win it, contextualize the gospel and take it out to our towns and our cities. So buy this. And read it. Number three, study the eternal reality of heaven and hell. 
I genuinely think heaven, and in particular hell, is something that is not talked about enough and not meditated on enough. It is very difficult if you meditate on hell to not, begin, not, to not begin to have great compassion for those that are lost. But we forget about it. We anesthetize it as if we've got plenty of time. It'll be all right. Hopefully they'll come in. No, they are running to hell an eternal conscious punishment for their sin. That's horrendous. If that is real, then we should be doing all we can to shout from the rooftops to what the truth is. So we need to study, I think, the eternal reality of heaven and hell. So Randy Alcorn is excellent on heaven. Any book that you ever see by Randy Alcorn on heaven, buy it, read it. Hell, there's not a lot out there. But there's different chapters in systematic theology, so particularly Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, looking at hell. Get it. Meditate on it. Consider it. Realize this is what you've been saved from, but the guy you sit next to at college, that's where he's going. And let that fetter what you're saying and affect what you're saying. Number four, week by week, discuss what you're learning with others. In life groups, in outside of that, M28 is when you go out for lunch on a Sunday. Discuss what God's doing in your lives. Discuss how your eyes are being opened to this stuff. Discuss where you're being challenged. Discuss what you're going to do about it. But spend time. Let us cultivate an environment as a family and as a local church where we're talking about this. This becomes a real idea. And if the honest truth is you rock up to life group and you have to put your hand up and say, you know what? The last time I ate a meal with an unbeliever was like 10 years ago. That's okay because that's what I had to do. But that's what gives grace a means of change. So let's discuss it. Let's be honest about where we're at and seek to change. Number five, sign up for and then attend Invest. You don't have to, but I'd really encourage you to. We're going to be going through Radical Reformation, but we're also going to be trying to put a lot more practical legs and think tank legs on what is it going to look like for us as a local church to be in the world to win the world. So not primarily talking about what are we all going to do as individuals. We can look at that in life group. But what are we going to do as a church? How can we brandish the gospel corporately and seek to embody embody the gospel and take it out to our towns and communities? That's going to be starting this week, I think, Wednesday and Thursday. Sign up for it. And finally, number six, pray. That is so important. Because without God's grace, we ain't changing. Without God's grace, we won't feel the compassion that we want to feel. Without God's grace, we won't really change. We'll be overwhelmed with the task in hand and we'll just think, well, I could never do this. How could I cope? So pray, cry out to God that he'll give us grace to change. Grace to see unbelievers like he sees them. Grace to feel a compassion like he feels a compassion. And so let's pray. Father, this is our desire as a local church. We do want to be in the world to win the world. But that's why, that's why we felt you desiring for us to plant this local church. Not primarily for the church, but the lost. And so Lord, would you help us over the next, next eight weeks to examine ourselves in light of scripture? And would we go away encouraged and motivated to model and be an ambassador for Jesus Christ? Lord, would you give us grace to do this? We, 
We so desire to be all things to all people so that by all means we may save some. Lord, we want to gather as your church a year from now and look around the room and see faces of people who today are lost and dead in their transgressions and sins. Lord, we simply do not expect them to walk through the doors. But as we walk out of the doors, we want to go to them. Lord, help us to see people like you see them. Help us to feel towards them like you feel towards them. Holy Spirit, do a work in our lives that simply only you can do. Lord, help us by your abounding grace. Lord, over the next year, two, three years, as we seek to embody this, would we truly be a local church that is passionate about the gospel in knowledge, in application and proclamation. Lord, help us to go into our city. Help us to go into our universities, our schools, our colleges, our workplaces, our communities. Lord, help us to be your hands and your feet where we live. That is the task you've assigned us. And so would our lives then be living worship to you. Lord, we want to be like you. And so help us by your abounding grace.